the rough picture is that um, where you thought we had these just two independent particles that just have like independent spins, we realize that there's these uh, deeper entanglements in nature, these deeper connections in nature. And really what we have aren't these two independent particles, but this one total system that's got these kind of holistic constraints. In this case, the holistic constraint is that of having total spin zero or having anti-correlated spin among its constituents. And if we just started with the particles and thought the particles came first, there's no good way of explaining how it is that the, the whole system has what looks like a kind of emergent property of um, having total spin zero. Um, whereas if we start from the whole system and we just assign properties yeah. to the whole system, then the claim is we have a better way of understanding what's going on with entangled systems. Hello, my geeselings. It is Mother Goose Robinson Earhart here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast, episode 50. And it is, it's pretty hard for me to really fathom how 50 episodes came out already. Uh, it really feels like I've just gotten started. But 50 is a really good number, and I have a really good podcast for you today. Uh, this one is with none other than Jonathan Schaffer, who is a world-renowned metaphysician, and rightly so, because the positions he defends, and quite powerfully, are, I think, for most people, pretty unintuitive, difficult, really fascinating positions. So Jonathan is a distinguished professor in the Department of Philosophy at Rutgers University, and he's best known for his work on two things that really go hand in hand. One is monism, in which he contends that there is only one fundamental entity, and that is the universe or the cosmos or space-time, maybe not space-time, however you want to look at it. I think it really depends on uh, the physics, and Jonathan isn't uh, committed to just what the cosmos is at this point, but we get into that. And then the other aspect of his work that he's most well-known for is the grounding relation, on which he has worked and is well-known for, along with Gideon Rosen and Kit Fine, which are two great names to have yours with in the same sentence. And Jonathan and I discuss these things quite broadly uh, and quite narrowly. We go into some depth. We talk about what monism is. We talk about the varieties of monism, how monism interacts with quantum entanglement. And then we also talk about grounding, uh, what it is, because it's, I think, even less intuitive or than the monism. monism. Um, and we talk about how the grounding relation diverges from the more dominant Quinean view of metaphysics and maybe harkens back to something advocated more by ancient philosophers like Aristotle. And again, we talk about some of the implications of grounding. Uh, for instance, we talk about ground functionalism, so how grounding might relate to the philosophy of mind. We talk about grounding in feminist metaphysics. and we also talk about Jonathan's pretty unique approach to philosophy in which he is, he's very programmatic, like some other very influential 
metaphysicians or metaphysicists, depending on which word you want to want to use, like uh, David Lewis. And one of my favorite aspects, though, of this conversation, as you will, you can imagine, or you will have imagined after listening to it, uh, just based on having listened to other episodes, is the parts of our conversation in which we talk about poetry. So Jonathan begins every single. I think every single paper with an epigraph, so a poem or a quotation, and they're all quite meaningful and quite aptly chosen. So we talk about a few of those, and I like any excuse uh, to talk about poetry. Without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Jonathan. You very often start your papers, maybe always, pretty much close to always, with a quotation from like poetry or ancient philosophy or elsewhere. And when it's well done, like yours are, I really enjoy that. But it's not something that you see often these days, particularly in philosophy papers. So wh- why do you do that? Huh. Well, that's a great question. Um, it's sort of captures um, a kind of a spirit for me or or a thought. Sometimes um, uh, I feel like often what I'm doing when I'm writing a philosophy paper is I'm trying to take a kind of snapshot of a certain state of mind where I think, oh, I've got some way of thinking about this issue that maybe will be insightful or at least interesting. And and something about a, a line of poetry can sometimes really encapsulate that state of mind. So that's what I'm, I'm trying to communicate. Okay, no, that's that's perfect, actually, because one of the ones that jumped out at me is you quoted from one of my favorite poems, The Snowman by Wallace Stevens. Oh. And the, the three lines that you quoted, I think, are the last three lines of the poem, and I'm just going to read them. <laughs> so, for the listener who listens in the snow... And nothing himself beholds nothing that is not there and the nothing that is. And that, so philo- I, I find those lines very powerful. And philosophy aside, do they mean anything in particular to you? Like what, what frame of mind do they capture? Yeah. So I'll tell you what frame of mind they capture for me, and I have no idea if this is true to the poem in any deeper sense. I'm not a Wallace scholar or anything like that. It just um, yeah, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It captures a certain austerity. It captures a certain um, silence and a certain just sort of observant vision. Um, the paper itself is very much about on the topic of like what's really out there and what isn't so something about the perspective of the last three lines of the poem kind of captured how i was feeling as the author of sort of like trying to like in this very detached silent way observe uh the world mm-hmm. yeah for me i mean it it probably changes every time i read it and taken a sigh out of context of the rest of the poem for me it just at least right now, it gives me this kind of ineffable, like nihilistic feeling. But 
yeah, one of peace that comes from like the quiet of this winter landscape. So I think that we're on the same page. I'm curious. So is literature another of your loves beyond uh, poetry, beyond philosophy? Because I mean, you quote Yeats, Whitman, Stevens. Those are all poets who I like deeply loved over the years yeah absolutely i mean uh, in a completely like amateur sense like i um, claim no like uh like knowledge or understanding of it but i've always uh, since like high school um been like a pretty avid reader of poetry and it's always like held a lot of emotional meaning for me oh that's awesome yeah same now okay now now thank thanks for uh humoring my curiosity there but actually thank you uh, like like no one ever has asked me about that people just want to be like what did you argue for you know so it's really cool that (laughs) that resonated with you and that we had a chance oh absolutely no great i mean no it wasn't just that the poetry but i really liked the marcus aurelius the heraclitus there there you had a lot of great people that you were pulling from i i talked to Sophie Grace Chappelle of the Open University a couple of weeks ago, and we got to talk a bit about philosophy and literature. And she read Gerard Manley Hopkins' I Wake and Feel the Fellow of Dark Not Day uh, in the podcast, and we talked about it, and it was uh, one of my favorite moments. So I, I'm always glad for an opportunity to talk about these kinds of things. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. But uh, so I, I would like, though, to talk to talk about your philosophy naturally as well. And you are, I think, quite famously and quite rightfully famously a monist. And for our listeners that aren't philosophers uh, and are just very interested, what quite generally is a monist? So, um, um for, for me, a monist is a person who believes that there's some kind of uh, underlying unity to the phenomenon. Um, and that view has taken uh, several different forms in the history of philosophy. Um, it used to be thought that what it was to be sort of a monist in metaphysics was to think that there's only one thing that exists, presumably like the whole cosmos or something like that, and that... Um, you and I and tables and chairs don't really exist, but are somehow like illusions or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's a pretty radical view, hard to believe, right, right. falls afoul of uh, G.E. Moore's truisms, like here is one hand and here is another. Well, there's two things right there. Um, uh, so the view that I've been trying to explore, and I, I want to say revive, because I think this is, the, this is the historically important version of the view, is the view that uh, acknowledges that there are many things that exist, one hand and another, you and I, lots of, lots of existences, but adds to that the claim that uh, what's fundamental is the one whole, the whole cosmos, and that you and I exist, but that we are, in the end, derivative fragments of a fundamentally integrated whole. So that's the, I call that priority monism, the idea that the the whole is in some sense Mm -hmm. prior, in Aristotle's sense of prior in nature. It's it's what's fundamental here. 
um, mm -hmm. and that there can be and other things, but that they have this derivative status. So I actually came upon your work. I might have mentioned this when we were um, talking earlier, because I, I was taking a class on Aristotle's physics with Alan Code, and Alan, we were talking about Eleatic monists, and Alan mentioned that you were the the champion of monism in the in the current world. Now, when you were referring earlier to this radical monist position that there is only one thing, is that the position that you are referring to, the Eleatic monist? I think that is probably the best reading of of, of like Parmenides and yeah. Um, um, I don't claim to be a historian, so uh, but yes, no, no, no problem. I, I I do think that um, the notion, this notion of um, a priority in nature or some things being more fundamental than others, um, in, in my knowledge, really sort of surfaces, at least in the Western tradition, with Plato and Aristotle. I don't see signs of it before uh, Plato and Aristotle. I mean, Aristotle codifies a notion of priority in nature. Um, it has this idea that substance comes first, and that uh, uh, mm -hmm. other ontological categories are dependent on substances for their existence. But I think even, uh, I, I think what he's codifying is a notion that we find, at least in Plato, um, with the idea that somehow, you know, um, maybe maybe the forms come before the sensibles, and maybe even in sort of the later Platonic dialogues, we get this idea that the form of the good has a certain special priority amongst the forms, and that the other forms derive their being and their nature from the form of the good. So we get this, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, never mind what we want to say about the forms or the form of the good, but we get this more general idea that there can be things that exist, but whose existence is uh, uh, dependent on some more fundamental things. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> before we, before though we get into the particulars of the various monisms and and your position, I'm curious how you ended up becoming a monist, since it's such a minority position today. And you mentioned that you're not a, an historian, which is totally okay. But so I'm assuming it wasn't from historical considerations, and maybe just from initial problems or questions you were considering early in your career? Yeah, I mean, actually, even what, when I was sort of, as an undergraduate, when I was first getting involved in philosophy, one of the um, uh, books that most inspired me is uh, Bertrand Russell's classic Problems of Philosophy. It's a beautifully written, mm -hmm. an introductory text to a lot of the problems of philosophy. And Russell is a notorious hater of of monism and hegel and <laughs> the kind of up the, the tradition that was you know uh, kind of in play in, uh, uh, pretty dominant at the time when russell was coming on the scene so in the problems of philosophy russell gives a little introduction to to the sort of the hegelian philosophy um and he describes it as this idea that the sort of the whole world is this one like integrated almost like an organism so that like the metaphysician, by finding like one little bit of it, could could trace out all the interconnections and come to knowledge of this, you know, vast interconnected whole. 
Mm-hmm. And then in the next paragraph, Russell goes on to make fun <laughs> of and try to like completely demolish that idea. But I was so struck by that picture when I read the book. Mm-hmm. It, it stuck with me as this sort of beautiful image. Um, so it's always sort of been in the back of my mind as something that um, I thought was sort of profound and interesting. And then as I was doing you know, my own research and thinking about a cluster of issues from like truth making to what on earth was going on in quantum mechanics, um, I started noticing a lot of points where um, it seemed like, oh, you know, that sort of monistic perspective might might be uh, insightful. And like, as my mind kept uh, hitting on these moments when it seemed like, oh, that monistic perspective seems like it might be insightful. Yeah, I sort of, oh. Maybe it's worth trying to like think systematically about whether that perspective uh, could be made viable and what. Yeah, yeah, I know that uh, you've worked on quantum mechanics and monism with Janine Ishmael, so I'm looking forward to getting to that at at some point. But again, before we uh, talk about your position in particular, which um, I. I think might have changed over as I was researching and reading some of your papers over the course of your career as a monist, but it seems that there are, there are three types of monism. There's existence monism, priority monism, uh, substance monism, existence monism I take is something that I was attributing to the Eleatics where there's just this one thing, correct? Yeah. Great. And then, so what are priority and substance monism? How do they relate to the, the first category? So, uh, well, uh, actually, I, I'm going to ask you to tell me more of what, what you mean by, by substance monism, because I can think of different things that different people might mean by that label. But I'll, well, I'll give something that, might, that, that you might have in mind. Uh, pri- so priority monism uh, uh, would mm-hmm. be the view that um, exactly one thing is fundamental. And when we talk about exactly one thing existing or exactly one thing being fundamental, it's usually the whole cosmos that's the object of interest. Though, you know, it doesn't have to be. It's interesting to play with that as a choice point as well. But just for now, let's just say it's the view that the whole cosmos is fundamental. But um, unlike the existence monist, the priority monist won't thereby, won't then go on to deny that you and I exist. Um, Schillens right, would go right, on right. to claim that you and I, give it, if do exist, which in this case, do, uh, 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 that you and I are derivative. Um, now, substance monism, uh, I think there's different things that could be meant by that label, but at least one sort of view is the idea that comes up in the debates in philosophy of mind about whether to be a sort of a, maybe a physicalist or a dualist about the mind and the body, or, or even an idealist uh, or a also the action of being a neutral monist. And and here the monism is not about um, the whole cosmos versus its proper parts, but rather about the number of types of substances that there are. So Hmm. on this way of thinking about it, the physicalist view, which is probably the dominant view nowadays and the view that I like, is a view that there's in a certain sense only one type of substance, physical substance, uh, there are mm-hmm. minds, but those are, in some sense, derivative, uh, and so right. not, not fundamental substances. Um, whereas a, an idealist also is kind of the opposite, the flip side of yeah, yeah. Idealist. Uh, uh, the idealist agrees that there's only one type of substance, but she thinks it's all mental substance. 
And if to the extent that she wants to acknowledge the existence of physical substance, it'll be as derivative from mental substances, maybe to take like a kind of uh, Barclayan perspective, like fundamentally we're all ideas in the mind of God or something like that. But then like, you know, maybe that's what sort of makes for um, uh, 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 material substances is sort of their mm-hmm. presence in God's mind. Um uh, and then the dualist thinks that there's just two irreconcilably different types of substance. Typically, that'll be like a, a, a material, physical substance and like a mental, spiritual substance, a, a body and a soul, as it were. Um, mm-hmm. and then, so, so we're contrasting the substance monism maybe with mm-hmm. like a Cartesian dualism. Something exactly. Like yes. Yes. So, so I, okay, again, there's different things you might mean by substance monism, but that's a fairly standard way of understanding that. And if I could just round out the roster, there was one other view oh, on the table, which is neutral monism. Spinoza helped us, oh. which is the idea that there's only one type of substance, so it's a monist view, but it's neither material nor mental, but something bit mysterious, something deeper that's neither material nor mental. Um, and that both material and mental things are uh, derivative from this one underlying neutral uh, common substance. That's, that's interesting. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but isn't is was Donald Davidson also a, a neutral monist? Um, or, I think he was a physicalist. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Great. He was. I don't know why I, I associate that uh, term with him. Uh, he defended a view, if I recall, that he labeled anomalous monism, uh, which Perfect. was a kind yeah. of, uh, and he yeah, that's and, and he was a, a physicalist and not an idealist or a neutralist. He thought it was material substance, as I recall. But he also thought that there weren't going to be um, certain kind of law-like relationships. Uh, that's the that's the anomalousness. Okay, thanks. Now, just to clarify one um, one distinction between existence monism and priority monism, and I want to bring in here a mariological notion. So, in existence monism, and for those who don't know, mariology is really the sort of logical study of parts and wholes. That's how I think of it. And in existence monism the whole has no parts. Uh, well, at least that's how I think of the Eleatics. You can't divide the, the whole. But in priority monism, does the cosmos have parts and our existence is because we are parts of the whole? Exactly. Yeah. That- so, yeah. So, um, right. In existence monism, the whole, ha- the whole has no proper parts. Um, there's only one thing. Um, in priority monism, you and I are proper parts of the cosmos. So there's a certain sense in which the sort of most pluralists and most priority monists will agree that things like you and I, well, you know, we exist and maybe the whole cosmos exists. These are all things that are out there. Um, and where that, what that debate is about isn't about what exists, but it's about what's, uh, uh, what's prior or what, what grounds what, to use a phrase that I like to use. It's about whether we should think of, so I, the way to, a way to understand the pluralist is she'll say, well, you and I exist, and maybe like the little particles constituting us exist, and maybe the whole cosmos that contains us exist. But she might say, oh, the particles are what's most fundamental, and they make up you mm-hmm. and I, and we in turn, and all the rest of the stuff, make up the whole cosmos. Whereas the priority right. monist kind of 
stands that picture on its head and says, no, no, the whole cosmos comes first. And its divisions are uh, derivative abstractions imposed upon it. Um, Is this the view, the view that you just contrasted with priority monism, is this what you've referred to as mariological nihilism? That all concrete objects are simple? Good. So uh, that's a different view. So mariological okay. nihilism is, uh, is the view that there are no, is the view that all objects are simple, that no objects mm-hmm. are related by the proper part of relation. Um, oh, okay. So on the, and, and that view can come in different forms too. So the existence monist is a mereological nihilist. She believes in one very big thing, but it's mereologically simple. It has no proper parts. She doesn't believe that there are any things related by the proper part of relation. Um, there's also the more common form of mereological nihilism in the literature is the like the atoms only, the little guys only view. Yeah, yeah. So that's the view that says, oh, there's there's just you know, a bunch of like teensy, tiny, maybe point particles. Um, Mm -hmm. But that's all there is. They don't form any larger holes. So you and I don't exist. At most, there are particles arranged Robinson-wise and particles arranged Jonathan-wise, but it's particles. Yeah. That's that's the nihilist view. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so somebody like Trenton Merricks might have been a nihilist. Yeah, he's a near nihilist. He's not a near nihilist. Okay. Yeah, he makes uh, a certain kind of exception for entities that have um, emergent causal powers. So he thinks, um, in line with a kind of Eliadic dictum, um, that uh, to be real is to have causal powers, and he thinks that for the most part. Mereological holes would at most be causally redundant upon their parts. So he has this example of like someone throwing a baseball through the window, and he says, Well, think about the causal contribution of each particle in the baseball. And he says that all the causal work is done right there. Positing a whole baseball in addition to all the particles is positing something that is at most causally redundant because it's doing no causal work over and above what the particles are already doing. Right. Um, but yeah. that kind of argument, as, 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 as Trenton Merrick's very, very aware, uh, allows exceptions for mereological holes that do make distinctive causal contributions. And Merrick's thinks that, uh, at least in cases where the whole has, uh, conscious, has consciousness, hmm. the consciousness can make such uh, uh, an emergent causal contribution. So Marx does think that there are, so he's not quite a nihilist because he thinks that you and I exist because we have these, uh, the added causal powers that consciousness brings with it. So no, no baseballs, no tables, but, but, but persons. Um, and maybe, maybe some other things that there's other non-redundant sort of emergent causal powers in the world. That's the merits. Okay. Great. Okay. I, I have two more questions about this merological nihilism. And one of them might be jumping ahead a little bit because I was, as I was thinking about space time being the one substance, I was wondering if 
this is something that could be in any way, if this constituted a metaphysical view that could in any way be experimentally disconfirmed. And I thought that one potential uh, sort of discovery might be that the world at its base layer is just tiny, vibrating, discrete strings. And you might... And I'm wondering if, if you would find that to be uh, compelling evidence or if there is just a broader sort of abstract argument that precludes your taking uh, the world as being mariologically nihilist or your being a mariological nihilist. Yeah, cool. So I, I want to, uh, I, I do think there are some points where um, empirical discovery can and should change our picture. Um, uh, you, you mentioned, Robinson, the idea of space-time being the one substance. Um, and uh, uh, then you brought up strings. But I, I, before we get to the string theoretic picture, I want to flag that the idea that it's space-time is itself an empirically, um, actually, at the moment, I think I'd say questionable matter. There are lots of emerging views in physics now that say that space-time structure itself is not a fundamental matter, but is derivative from some deeper underlying structure. So there's stuff coming out of like black hole cosmology and like, uh, like paradoxes of information that come out of there that suggest, uh, and, and from other sources in physics, that suggest that maybe space-time itself uh, uh, disappears. Uh, when we get more fundamental, uh, maybe, maybe what's left is some uh, some other structure, um, uh, maybe just a causal structure, maybe some other something like a metric or, or so, so something that, that's not quite spatiotemporal. So I certainly think that's a point where uh, our, our best physics could tell us that the underlying stuff is is structured differently than. Um, than we might have thought, and certainly that I was assuming when I was talking about space-time being the one substance. Um, so that's one sort of issue, but that, that's a bit separate from the idea. Uh, like I, I, I'm guessing what, when you're when you're bringing up the prospect of, like, say, string theory, that you were thinking, well, this is still taking place in some kind of spatio-temporal background, but it's just giving us like lots of little guys as opposed to one big guy. Uh, that, that kind of mm -hmm. thing. yeah. So. Um, even in that kind of a theory, there remains questions about whether we want to think about uh, the fundamental ontology of the theory in this, in terms of just like, you know, here's one little string vibrating this way, and here's one little string or membrane or whatever vibrating this other pattern, or whether we want to think of this in a more in 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 various alternative holistic ways. So. One alternative holistic way of thinking about it is we might think, well, here's a kind of um, a vibrational field that's living on the whole of space-time. And it's just, we, we, we think, um, people think, for instance, with mass, just to, uh, we don't need to talk about strings and vibration, we can just think of mass. One thing that you might think is, oh, okay, we have like, a little thing with like this mass here and a little thing with that mass there and blah, blah, blah. Um, but a kind of different way of encoding that information, if you like, is to think, well, there's the whole cosmos and it's got a mass distribution field 
that assigns like, you know, this level of mass here and that level of mass there. So then it becomes kind of a, a distributional property of the whole. So um, even when our best physics is talking about like particles, masses, or strings and their vibrations, there are still kind of interpretive questions about whether to think of the theory holistically or um, more um, atomistically, pluralistically. Got it. So there are what I'm what I'm hearing from you is that there are very important empirical considerations when it comes to deciding what we want to regard as the fundamental level. But prior to the empirical studies, we can there are considerations for uh, treating the whole as ontologically prior to the parts. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I agree. Yeah, okay. Yes, that's good. Um, okay, okay uh, great. But what I also, the, the other thing I just wanted to add to that is that even sort of posterior to the, the empirical studies, after we've got the results in, there's always going to be a question of interpreting them. Like, you know, physics is at best, you know, if the grand unified theory arrives tomorrow, we get like a bunch of equations that maybe like are like so beautifully compact that we can write them on a t-shirt. Um, but it's just a bunch of equations. Oh, I say justice if that was like a minor thing, but yeah. <laughs> I didn't mean it. But what it is uh, going to be is going to be um, certain equations. And then it's still going to be a kind of interpretive question of, what is this telling us about the world? What's the best way of understanding what the world is like such that these are the equations that uh, uh, so well describe it? Okay. Okay, and then this last question I had about mariological nihilism. Now, I don't remember things that I wrote a week ago. So <laughs> if you don't remember this argument that you made in a paper 15 or 20 years ago. But in one of these, in your paper from nihilism to monism, you argue that adopting a, a mariological nihilist viewpoint or something to this effect sort of actually commits you to becoming a monist. Uh, and I can cut this out if I'm totally wrong, but why is this? Good. So, because <laughs> it seems like it'll be, a, it seems like a very tidy, nice argument or a, a very explicit conclusion i suppose oh, okay well thanks um yeah so this was um, this is so from nihilism to monism and what the kind of monism by the way that i meant there was existence monism so i thought the mirological nihilist uh, this is actually connected to what we were saying earlier about there being these different forms of mirological nihilism so you can be a nihilist and think well the only there's only the one big cosmos uh, or be a nihilist and think no there's only the like the many tiny particles so I think if you're going to be a nihilist, there's a lot of uh, maybe surprising pressure to go up to the um, one big only the one big cosmos version of nihilism. Um, and so the way that most uh, neurological nihilists argue uh, for their view, which actually uh, you can see already in the the Mer Merricks being a near nihilist in the in the Merrick style baseball argument was the idea that wholes and parts are kind of causally redundant. Um, once you've got either of them, either the, the proper parts or the whole, it's enough to do all the causal work, and you don't need to posit 
the kind of the, if you've got the proper parts, you don't need to posit the whole, and if you've got the whole, you don't need to posit the proper parts to give uh, uh, a complete causal account of what's happening. But that argument, uh, at least as I'm as, as related, is neutral as to whether you want the whole or the proper parts. It just says don't have both. Um, and so um, then um, people say, oh, we want like the most parsimonious view that keeps us away from a causally redundant ontology. And of course, the monist view is incredibly parsimonious. Just one yes, yes. view, just one thing. Um, and it's, it keeps us away from a causally redundant ontology. Um, so that's why I was thinking those kind of considerations of uh, go for parsimony and avoid redundancy were actually pushing towards existence monism. And then there was a further, if I, to the extent that I remember the paper, there was a further concern mm-hmm. that I had, which is actually kind of a, has some kind of a, has a partly empirical basis, uh, and a partly and a partly formal basis in uh, uh, the classical uh, Mariology, um, is that um, well in classical Mariology you are guaranteed to have a unique topmost element, the fusion of all things. So that mm-hmm. would be like, no, if that's the right way to understand the structure of parts and holes, you're always going to find a biggest hole, the kind of thing that the existence monist believes in. But in classical mm-hmm. Mariology, you are not guaranteed to find smallest parts. There are right. what gets labeled gunky models. Right. Um, or, ad- or atomic models. and Yeah. So, so right. So, atomic models bottom out in smallest properties. Right, 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 right. Atom. I'm just saying there are all sorts of different models. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So there are the there there are the there are the atomic models, and then there are the atomless models or gunky models, right, right. in which things mm-hmm. are sort of limitlessly divisible. Everything has proper parts. If you take anything, you can, as it were, subdivide it into smaller proper parts. Um, and no end to that process. You can even have mixed models where we have some stuff that bottoms out in atoms and other stuff that's uh, gunky and atomless and you can, as it were, cut it up uh, uh, forever without end. Um, so um, the, the um, muriological nihilist who wants to look to the smallest bits isn't guaranteed to find anything at all might not be smallest bits and in, in, in gunky models of mirology, you don't find any smallest bits. Whereas the mirological nails to instead of going with this pluralist option of looking to the smallest bits goes with the uh, monist option, existence monist option of looking to the one big hole, she's guaranteed to find something uh, uh, to be the thing uh, that will, that exists by her, the lights of her theory. So that was yet a further reason, uh, further pressure on the mirological nihilist uh, towards existence monism as opposed to existence pluralism. No, I, mm-hmm. I don't hold any of these views. I'm not an, a nihilist myself, and I'm not an existence monist. But I was just uh, right. It was supposed to be a kind of dialectical pressure um, that was okay. interesting to. That, that's what I was. That's what I was wondering. Is so. In this early paper, you were arguing that taking this mariologically nihilist position might lead you to actually become an existence monist. And then you also mentioned a a few minutes ago that 
development in the physics community may result in currently, I mean, maybe stronger than may result in physics not taking space-time as fundamental. And what I'm wondering then is, is this an example or are these examples of your particular views on monism having shifted over the years? Because another one of your early papers is called um, space-time, the one substance. Well, that's a great question. And my views have definitely shifted. And I, I, would, I would be sad if they hadn't, I feel like. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. Like definitely. Certainly didn't foresee all sorts of considerations when I was first playing with monist ideas. So I'm, I'm, I'm sort of proud. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's been a lifelong program for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I, I don't know. There, there's a sometimes like, in in analytic philosophy, people have to say that like, oh, you changed your view. That's like yeah. some like shameful bad thing. But I think the opposite. I think anyone who like anyone who holds a view for a single view for the course of their career, it's like either they encountered every single reason, you know, bearing on their view at the very beginning. No way, <laughs> you know, or like they're just yeah. not responding to the reasons that are coming their way, which is, you know, I don't want. To. To be that way. Anyway, so yeah, uh, my, my views have changed in, in, in a number of respects. Um, with respect to the space-time bit that you were asking about, yeah, I think at the time when I was writing space-time, the one substance, I would I was had only the most like the, the smallest bit of like passing awareness. Like I'd heard the rumor that there were these developments in physics that we're suggesting <laughs> that maybe space-time isn't the fundamental arena at all, but is just some kind of emergent structure. But I didn't really know what that meant. I didn't, really, I didn't know anything about it. So I just kind of, it wasn't really in my, in my, on my radar. Um, and I've come to have, I don't claim like a, I'm not a philosopher of physics or physicist, right? I don't claim like a great understanding of these theories, but I've come to have like a, a, a better sense of what these theories are saying and why they are considered um, you know, real contenders for uh, how to think about our world. And so that has definitely opened me up to the idea that the sort of the underlying structure maybe is different than we tend to suppose. So at this point, you're you're more agnostic on what that fundamental substance is, but you still will broadly refer to it as the cosmos, whatever the cosmos may be. Yeah, exactly. And whether it's, right, and, right. and I'm, I'm thinking of it, and maybe this will, maybe this is to be revised as well. I'm thinking of it, broadly speaking, as inhabiting an arena. Um, uh, it's just, there's a question of whether that arena, most fundamentally speaking, has certain kind of, what kind of structure it has. Like, does it have topological structure? Does it have metrical structure? Um, I mean, there's different sorts of structures we can impose um, on on our arena, and I think it's just just an empirical question as to what structure the arena ultimately um, ultimately has. So, yeah. Now, to to take a step back then from the physics for a moment, and I, I would like to better understand some of your reasons for taking the whole as ontologically prior to the parts. And you had a, a very nice example in 
your paper, Mona, is in the priority of the whole that I thought made this very clear. And it's your example of a circle and a pair of its semicircles. And I thought you might lay that example out for our listeners, and then maybe we could talk a bit about why, about how this whole part uh, dichotomy comes in. Cool. Yeah. So that's, I think that if I recall, that's actually the, like the very beginning of the monism yeah, yeah. of the whole paper. I say like that, you know, consider a circle and consider sort of, you know, imagine like drawing a line through the circle. So we got sort of two semicircles. Um, and now we want to ask, um, which of these is more, at least relatively more fundamental? Should we think of the circle as constructed out of the semicircles, where the semicircles are sort of in a certain sense, they're there first, and we build up to the circle from them? Or, alternatively, should we think of the semicircles as cut from the whole circle, where we think the whole circle is, again, as it were, metaphorically speaking, there first, and the semicircles are what we get from um, uh, carving it up? So... Mm -hmm. Maybe in that example, you already feel some pressure to think of the circle as first and the semicircle as kind of a derivative abstraction from the whole circle. I mean, maybe it's even sort of almost built into the label semicircle that it like mm -hmm. kind of came out of the circle in some way. I'm not sure. Um, uh, so the example was not supposed to be like totally neutral it was like <laughs> supposed to be like a, uh, a yeah. helpful way of seeing how monism could not only be a possible view but maybe even have some attractions um but uh, the, the example what I, I wasn't trying to argue more than i wasn't trying to argue out of that example i was just sort of like a starting point uh way of putting some of the issues on the table mm -hmm. well it's funny because as i was reading it I was thinking that an initially plausible reason for me to take the parts as prior was that I was just thinking, well, if I were to draw a circle right now, it would start part by part. And it's sort of, I don't know, it felt like a little bit, I'm not saying you were cheating, but it feels like a little bit like cheating to to just take the circle as given and then decompose it. Uh, because for the circle to come to come into existence, it might have to come uh, as parts. Right. I mean, I guess if you were to engage in like the causal process of like taking pen to paper and drawing mm -hmm. the circle, you, you, would, you, would, you would draw the perimeter like, you know, in, in an extended process, sort of section by section. Um, I guess maybe, maybe you had like a rubber stamp and you just stamp the circle on the page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it would all come in at once. So maybe this depends on like how you got circle onto page. Um, but um, in the case of the cosmos, um, and when you want to think about the causal process of how the cosmos came to be, uh, you know, sort of a like, fairly classic picture now is like it all started at the Big Bang. So it's just all, it was just all there already. Um, maybe it was sort of all there, but like scrunched up. And then it's sort uh -huh. of um, uh, everything that was already in a certain sense there in the Big Bang then sort of has since engaged in this long causal process that's basically an explosion. So mm -hmm. the idea that we are all 
fragments or shards of a single integrated whole, you can think about the idea that we're just we're just bits of an explosion. Yeah, no, that I I, I like the how the Big Bang sort of it it is a compelling example or a compelling case for making me think of myself as just a part of the big hole, especially when you think that it presumably began as like almost a, a point like mass. Uh, yeah. This single thing. Now, so that that's actually a, a very strong physical consideration for, for favor, for favoring the ontological prior priority of the whole. And earlier I mentioned, or you mentioned, uh, quantum mechanics, and I mentioned that you'd worked uh, with Janan Ishmael on a paper on quantum mechanics and monism. And what are what is the connection? I, I gather that it might have something to do with like entanglement, so things things being uh, connected. But I, I'm sure you could do a better job of fleshing that out uh, than I can. I'll try, but you're exactly right. It is uh, these considerations are stemming from entanglement, which is one of the sort of deepest and maybe spookiest features of quantum mechanics. It's also uh, I should before getting into that, it's also a, been like pretty directly empirically confirmed. So even um, successor theories to quantum mechanics presumably are still going to retain this entanglement picture. This is probably now just uh, one of the deepest elements in our understanding of physical reality. Um, And quantum mechanics encodes it in a particular way, but it's probably sort of going to be with us even like, you know, whatever comes after quantum mechanics, like in quantum field theory, for instance, like this, we still have this, it's probably going to be with us kind of in a theory independent. But um, the basic idea of entanglement um, is that you have um, a whole system that has some proper parts, but um, you can't completely describe what's happening in any of the proper parts without bringing in the rest of the system. it's a bit crude, but uh, maybe it'll help to give like the classic example, which comes from Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen, EPR, um, a, a thought experiment that they uh, um, presented, which is that if we, we get we get these two particles, um, and um, we they're they're in a certain uh, entangled state, um, and let's I'm going to describe that entangled state as being the state of being anti-correlated in uh, X-spin. Let's just just say spin, anti-correlated in spin. And what it means for the two particles to be anti-correlated in spin is they have to have opposing spins. If the one is spin up, the other has got to be spin down, and vice versa. If the other is spin up, then the first has to be spin down. So we, we prepare these two particles in the in 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 a in this they're in a system and the system has the state of being total spin zero so that the, that means that they're so that the they're, the particles are anti-correlated in spin and now uh, in quantum mechanics 
we can at least imagine that these particles are shot out, you know, trillions of light years apart, arbitrary, mm -hmm. arbitrary mm -hmm. distances. And now if we do a measurement on the one particle, quantum mechanics will tell us, well, 50-50, whether that measurement is going to produce a spin-up result or a spin-down result. But it's going to tell us whichever result we get, let's say we get spin-up on our first particle, that other particle trillions of light years away, because it's anti-correlated, is spin-down. That mm -hmm. sounds like right. Einstein called that spooky action at a distance. So some yeah. things... He wasn't wrong. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, and, and a lot of this I should, should sort of depends on the kind of underlying interpretation of this connected to what I was saying earlier, but we've got to interpret the equations and there's quite different ways of interpreting the equations of quantum mechanics. So um, some of what I'm going to say is like, might seem different on different interpretations, but like the rough picture is that um, where you thought we had these just two independent particles that just had like independent spins, we realize that there's these uh, deeper entanglements in nature, these deeper connections in nature. And really what we have aren't these two independent particles, but this one total system that's got these kind of holistic constraints. In this case, the holistic constraint is that of having total spin zero or having anti-correlated spin among its constituents. And if we just started with the particles and thought the particles came first, there's no good way of explaining how it is that the, the whole system has what looks like a kind of emergent property of um, having total spin zero. Um, whereas if we start from the whole system and we just assign properties yeah. to the whole system, then the claim is we have a better way of understanding what's going on with entangled systems. Yeah, that's that's very neat because I mean uh, the entanglement is I mean something that's left uh, the the physics departments and entered the zeitgeist, and <laughs> so that's that's a very I think I think a lot of people who aren't physicists are going to hear that and understand it, and well, they might not understand all the spin stuff, but they'll see how it. Connect, I mean, I even see how how it very strongly connects to monism, and that interpretation gives uh, is a nice explanatory framework, uh, even for just our common sense. But another sort of consideration, though, that you uh, take into account and write about is modal considerations, mm -hmm. and is one of them what you have called uh, the laser, as opposed to Occam's razor? Um, so uh, the laser as opposed to the razor was a, is yeah. a methodological canon of the theory choice. Um, mm -hmm. This isn't so much a modal principle, but... Um, oh, it's not. Okay, that, sorry. So Occam's razor that many of us are familiar with says, uh, uh, don't multiply entities without necessity. It's basically telling you... Um, don't believe in extra stuff you don't need to believe in. Minimize the number of entities you posit uh, as long as it's sort of you've got sort of an explanatorily adequate theory. Like, gotta keep enough entities around to do the explanatory work, but don't posit sort of explanatorily superfluous entities. Um, I've argued that that's not a great methodological principle. Uh, there's something right about it, but I've argued that a 
better methodological principle, what I call the laser, um, is uh, one that's just restricted to fundamental entities. It says, don't multiply fundamental entities without necessity. But then when we get to derivative, it's false silent on derivative entities. So it allows us, uh, and this is actually, I think, uh, if we were to look at the debate between, say, an existence monist and a, and a priority monist, or an existence pluralist and a priority pluralist, the, the, um, the priority person is positing strictly more entities, like take the monism. Uh, take the monism side mm-hmm. of things. The existence monism just has the one cosmos. That's it. That's super parsimonious from the uh, lights of Occam's razor. Whereas the uh, uh, priority monist also has like you and I, and tables and chairs and particles. That's a lot more entities. So that can seem to be, but at least by the lights of Occam's razor, uh, that's a worse theory. I mean, maybe it has countervailing virtues, but it's starting off with a pretty significant cost in parsimony by the lights of Occam's razor. But the laser has a different, as it were, accounting scheme for the costs of uh, theories. It says theories only pay in for the fundamental entities they posit. And the existence monist and the priority monist agree about the fundamental entities, just the one big cosmos. So by the lights of the laser, existence monism and priority monism are tied for parsimony. Um, and just to give you a sort of one of the motivations for preferring the laser to the razor comes from thinking about the the analogy between ontological economy and conceptual economy. So we also want a a, a simple um, roster of concepts that we're using. Um, But in the conceptual case, it's pretty clear, I think, that what we want to minimize are primitive undefined concepts. Uh, uh, Non-primitive defined concepts, well, they come for free if you can define them. In fact, part Mm -hmm. of the point of having a good system of primitive concepts is that it allows you to define up hopefully a lot of useful concepts. If a system of primitives of concepts is shown to allow you to define up a new and useful concept, Mm-hmm. That's a cause for celebration. That's a great result for that system of primitives. Yeah, like the point in geometry. I mean, is so powerful as a primitive. Yeah, great example. But imagine now that someone said, "Oh no, I found that my system of primitives allows me to define a new concept. I've lost conceptual parsimony. I've got more concepts now." That would be a very mm-hmm. misguided thought. They've got more concepts, yes, but those are but. They're defined concepts, so so no worries. So I wanted to make the claim that exactly that analogy held on the ontological side. So the priority monist has these extra entities like you and I, but uh, as opposed to the existence monist. Uh, but I wanted to say that's not a problem with the theory. It's a virtue of the theory, uh, just like it was a virtue of a system of conceptual primitives that it could allow you to define a new and useful concept. So it would be a virtue of a theory of ontologically basic elements if it would allow you to uh, ground um, plausible derivative entities like you and I. So that's, mm. that's the laser and the razor. So that, that's not, there's nothing, there's no like boxes or diamonds right. or necessarily is. Yeah, yeah. I... It's a canon of theory choice, like which, 
which of two theories to prefer? Right. I made the I made the the mistake the mistake of seeing necessity and then jumping to modality oh, when I see necess- necessity written on in, a, in the title of a gotcha. of a paper. But so when you refer to modal considerations for taking monism, I immediately then jump to David Lewis because I know you got your your PhD at Rutgers, but wasn't yeah. he? Was, David Lewis was on your dissertation committee, right? Absolutely. So you have that connection. Yeah, and more than that. Like, I know he's influential. <laughs> yeah, I mean more than that, really. I mean, really, kind of my my hero in so many ways. Like that, really. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering. I, I was going to ask that later. I mean, you like him are a very much programmatic uh, philosopher. In that you're building a world in the in the same way that he was, but anyway, um, many worlds do, do them. <laughs> yeah, for him, do do the modal considerations ha- you have in mind intersect at all with possible worlds, that sort of thing, or what are they? Yeah. So, I mean, there are some modal considerations uh, in the monism debate. Uh, and that's actually have to do with what we were talking about before about uh, atoms versus gunk. Um, and so there the idea is that um, metaphysical theory, whether it's monist or pluralist, should um, have a certain kind of generality to it. It shouldn't, whichever theory is the true theory, monist or pluralist, should hold through all of the metaphysically possible scenarios and shouldn't just be a kind of uh, 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 metaphysical contingency that only holds in some of these metaphysically possible scenarios. And so the thought was that monism had at least the chance of being metaphysically necessary. It could hold in all the metaphysically possible scenarios because uh, at least if classical Mariology is operative in all the possible scenarios, there's guaranteed to be a, a one big hole for the monist to call fundamental, but that the pluralist was going to have a really hard time making sense of gunky scenarios in which there are no simple, uh, smallest bottom level atoms, but just things are uh, uh, there's everything has proper parts. Um, she's either going to have to say that things get ever more fundamental without without limits, so that there's nothing that is fully fundamental. And that's concerning. You might think there have to be some sort of fundamental things from which everything else derives. Um, that's a debatable thing, but that's that's that, that's the concern there. Or it's it's not clear what else the pluralist will say about gunky scenarios. But the worry there is that gunk is metaphysically possible. Um, uh, metaphysical theory should be metaphysically necessary, but. Um, if gunk is metaphysically possible, then pluralism can't be metaphysically necessary. And that's enough to uh, give you an argument against uh, pluralism. Yeah, that's a strong one, too. Uh, and, and, oh, please. Oh, I was going to say, well, now, for the moment at least, I'd uh, like to turn now from monism to grounding. Cool. Even though the other big fork of your, of your uh, program. And, it it does though seem to me that it's it i mean it's very much related to the monism and before we talk about what the grounding relation is and what grounding is 
I'm curious now about how you became involved in this debate too, because it's also, again, results, I think, in a radical change from contemporary metaphysics. And it seems, as far as I can tell, that it sort of started with some of your work on, is there a fundamental level to reality? Some of which you did with L.A. Paul. Uh, is is that, am I on track with my hunch? Um, so the grounding stuff <laughs> not. came out of, uh, of stuff that, uh, oh, I Kit Fine, Gideon Rosen and I, like roughly around the same period. Actually, I mean, Kit was really there first. Um, but, but, but the three of us were sort of thinking about issues and grounding at roughly the same time. Um, I do have this paper, Is There a Fundamental Level? Um, but it was sort of a pre-grounding paper for me. I didn't really have those ideas in mind at the time when I was writing those papers. That's another point where my views have changed. Um, mm-hmm. But um, the grounding stuff came came into view for me actually as a kind of offshoot of the monism project. Um, though it's definitely come into like a, a full life of its own and then some, I mean, it maybe in many ways kind of eclipsed the monism project, at least in terms of the, the interest that the great uh, community as a whole has taken in these matters. Um, so when I was doing the monism project, I was wanting to articulate this notion of priority that some things are more fundamental than others and at the time that I was first uh, sort of going around, you know, giving talks about like, oh, you know, there's monist view, um, people did not have any such notion of, of, of priority or fundamentality or grounding. Um, and I got a lot of, I don't know what you mean by this kind of. Yeah. Uh, kind and of people that. still say that a lot. Uh, philosophers do say that a lot about all sorts of things, but I did get a lot of sort of missive, like, I don't have a way of making sense of this. And in the kind of, um, kind of Lewis frameworks that I and many other people were working in prior to grounding, um, uh, the, there wasn't a kind of officially recognized way of making sense of grounding. So I wanted to make these claims of priority People were like, what are you talking about? So I wrote a little a little side paper just to explain what I was talking about called On What Grounds What. Um, and that became, uh, uh, by, by far my most cited paper, that became like one of the papers alongside with uh, Kit's foundational work and Gideon Rosen's work at roughly the same time as mine. Those, those, those sort of those three papers became like, the big three papers that everyone cites is like the start of the grounding discussion. Now is, I'm wondering, is your title on what grounds, what a uh, play on Quine's paper on what there is? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it is. Okay. Well, well, and, well spotted. Good. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, and well, maybe it would be nice to, to start by putting, grounding in something of an historical perspective because you're you're contrasting this view with i mean it's a radical shift from um the quinean view of metaphysics and so what is that quinean view and how do these two differ and how does that bring grounding into a focus yeah great so um quine says that um ontology metaphysics uh 
is about uh, what exists, what is there. And he says, we can answer that with a single word, everything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But there remains room for dispute over cases. So (laughs) he's so witty. It's like, he's amazing. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah, So he's like, well, you know, we could still just be like, you know, are there numbers? Are there, are there properties? Are there propositions? We can, uh, for particular cases, we can ask whether those are among the things that exist. So, um, so that was the like runaway dominant view of what metaphysicians are trying to do. Uh, at the time when I was starting to um, you know, work on Ahmad And what frustrated me about that view was that like, when the Quinean metaphysician is done, what she's going to give you at the end of the day is just like the big list of what there is. Maybe it's got numbers on it. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's got propositions on it. Maybe it doesn't. But in the end, it's just a list. And a list has no explanatory merit. It doesn't say why things are on the list. It just things are on the list or not. Um, and so um, let's take the case of numbers. To, that's sort of, I often use this as like a worked example to talk the, these issues through. So let, let me use that case. Um, uh, I was thinking, well, in the case of numbers, First of all, it's really obvious that there are numbers. And in the sense that there are these super hard to resist arguments for the existence of numbers, such as, um, are there numbers between four and eight? <laughs> Give you a second. The answer, is, the answer is yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. If there are numbers between four and eight, then there are numbers. Okay. Uh, that that is a uh, so you know from like just the most blindingly obvious mathematical truisms like there are numbers between four and eight and um, logically impeccable inferences from there are numbers between four and eight to there are numbers we get to the conclusion that there are numbers so if that's what metaphysics was about it well, I guess it just got really easy. Um, but it seemed to me that that kind of, uh, that, that missed the point of the metaphysical project. So my thought was the interesting, uh, metaphysical question about numbers isn't whether they exist because of course they do. It's why they exist. Are they fundamental entities in a way that arguably uh, Plato thought they were? Are they just sort of fundamental root ingredients in being that don't come from anything deeper but are there from the start? Or should we think of numbers as derivative from maybe some concrete structures in the physical world, maybe even from our own cognitive activities, maybe they're just a reflection of how we think of of the world? Those are all open views. So I thought, the interesting question isn't whether numbers exist, but what, if anything, grounds the numbers. Maybe nothing does and they're fundamental. Maybe our, our minds do and they're mind-dependent entities, or maybe come from concrete structures. So that was the sense in which I thought, um, well, that's the sense in, that's my, what was my understanding of the, the 
Aquinian view was about, and my, the sense of why I thought it was unsatisfying for not giving us explanations for why the world is as it is, and also why I hope that grounding could do more. Uh, before we continue, I'm, I'm curious. So you are very confident in the existence that there are numbers <laughs> and uh, Quine, for instance, I mean, he's, it, it took him a lot to, I mean, he started out as anomalous. It took him a lot to admit the, that there, well, I don't even know if he ever explicitly admitted numbers to his ontology, but he definitely admitted mathematical objects. So do you not find um, nominalist or linguistic nominalist more like Hartree, Hartree Fields program, things like that, compelling at all, where they're trying to do away with numbers and as opposed to saying, treating um, there are numbers between four and eight as a statement implying the existence of objects called numbers is more just like a manner of speech and saying something completely different, like according to the fiction or whatever it is, there are numbers. Yeah, so the, uh, let's see. Um, I do think that there's a way in which we can understand what was uh, and respect what was motivating a lot of nominalists, including Field. Um, and it's the thought that we don't want to allow numbers in fundamental reality. I mean, if you think about what's motivating Field, it's the thought that, like, um, you know, numbers aren't really sort of causally operative and aren't sort of intrinsic descriptions of what's going on so our like our real physics shouldn't so sorry would leave field off for a sec go back to quine quine thought the argument for numbers or mathematical objects generally was that they are required it looks like our best physical theories quantify over them so they're required by our best physics and then and then in comes field and mm -hmm. says well no actually it's important that our best physics not uh, uh, use numbers, and he had a kind of a kind of replacement program. Um, and in Fields' program, we do have these structures. He replaces sort of number talk with certain kind of structures of like betweenness and congruence over space-time points. So it's a you know, beautiful um, program for trying to do physics or science generally without without using numbers. But even if even if Fields program worked perfectly, all that would show, I say, is that numbers aren't fundamental. We don't need them in physics. Uh, what Field would have accomplished by my lights, though this isn't how he thought of it, but I think this is I'm gonna say this is a a better understanding of what field would have accomplished if, if, if his program were successful, he would have shown us how and why numbers come into the world on the basis of certain betweenness and congruence relations between space-time points. So I think field, and that reconciles field's uh, arguments that we shouldn't want to quantify over numbers in fundamental physical theory, with the arguments that, of course, there are numbers, in particular, there are some between four and eight. Okay, no, th that that's extremely helpful. So um, thank, thank you for that. Uh, returning to the context again. Um, so why, I know you're, you're not 
an historian, which is totally okay. But why do you contrast Quine's view of metaphysics with an Aristotelian view? And you sort of characterize what you're doing as reviving that in a way. Yeah, because I do think the sort of things that I was um, saying were missing from the Quinean view were actually there all along in the Aristotelian view. And this goes back when I was talking about priority at the very beginning of our discussion. So there's, there's the, the sort of codified in Aristotle's notion of priority in nature. So Aristotle, I think, already had this, I think, quite natural and intuitive idea that there are, I mean, he, he does say that there are, th- he does think that there are numbers, but the question is, is the question isn't whether they exist, it's why they exist or how and why they exist. Um, and to answer that, we want to say what's most fundamental and how the um, less fundamental or the derivative entities uh, come into the world on the basis of the, more, uh, the most fundamental entities. So I think that nice. pictures, uh, that kind of picture of explanatory metaphysics isn't, it's not, not original with me. I think it's, it's just like a, a very compelling uh, perspective that has been around for most of the history of philosophy because it was an Aristotle that a lot of what we do is built on Aristotle, but it got forgotten in the last hundred years when the logical positivists came and kind of uh, 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 bulldozed a lot of the um, uh, structures of metaphysics that had been in place, we lost in the philosophical community, we lost a lot of important metaphysical concepts. So I I always sort of saw what I was doing as a, a bit of a kind of recovery program of kind of reminding um, uh, other metaphysicians that, you know, this sort of uh, conceptual scheme that we w- tend to be working in that we get through like, you know, Quine and Lewis, um, maybe impoverished with respect to sort of the big picture metaphysical tools that we need. And if we go back a little bit, you know, before the positivists came and sort of knocked over a lot of metaphysics, but we'll see that there was a sort of a much sort of more robust and deep understanding of metaphysical structure that uh, tried to argue is worth reviving. Hmm. Well, there, there's one last uh, historical character who I'm curious, and I'm curious about his role in all of this, uh, and that's Rudolf Carnap. How did his... I'm guessing it's closely related to Quine, uh, but how how does he figure into the ontological considerations and grounding? Yeah, great. So um, Carnap is usually like if you like at least before the grounding stuff came into the discussion, like you go back to the metaphysical textbooks and they're like, "What is metaphysics?" and it, uh, people usually sort of presented this big d- debate between the Quinians, who think that metaphysics is about what there is, and that's revealed by what's quantified over in our best theories, that's the one view, versus the Carnapians, who are sort of skeptical or in some sense hostile to metaphysical inquiry. So it's sort of this kind of older view that like what metaphysics is was sort of 
That's the Quine Carnap debate. Um, but really, right. Quine and Carnap agreed about a lot. Um, mm-hmm. They both agreed that metaphysics is about what there is. It's about existence questions. Um, neither of them thought of themselves as historians or thought that was like a historically rooted idea. In fact, Carnap at one, sorry, no, sorry, Quine at one point says, um, I, I, I don't care about history. He says, I'm happy to call it metaphysics just because um, I like the idea of taking names that were used for meaningless projects and like repurposing them for something useful. <laughs> So yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so, maybe so, as Heidegger in mind, I don't think he was a fan. Yes, definitely not exactly. <laughs> um, so um, Quine and Carnap agreed about a lot, and then they had, by my lights, like a kind of a fairly small scale dispute about um, a, a quantification and sort of holism of meaning, um, where. Um, Carnap had this idea that, that that existence questions have this like there's an internal to a framework reading and an external to a framework reading. I don't want to get into sort of the nuances of Carnap, but the way I see it, Carnap and Quine agreed on what, by my lights, is the sort of fundamental issue here, which is that metaphysics is about what there is, and then they went on and disagreed about whether that question has a univocal meaning and you know what its meaning or meanings is and what kind of methods we might use to answer that question or whether we maybe ought to uh, uh, dismiss that question at least on the readings that the metaphysicians give it. And what I want to say in opposition to that whole Quine-Carnap view is that metaphysics isn't about what there is in the first place. Um, about what grounds what it's about these more explanatory structures sure and okay perfect well then that leads directly to what exactly is the grounding relation Uh, what grounds what (laughs) um so the grounding relation is the relation between a more fundamental source or sources and its less fundamental result So whenever we think that there are some things in the world that are more fundamental than others and and some and where some of those non-fundamental things are like we want to think of them as the results of those more fundamental sources. Um, uh, 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 Sorry, let me pause just to give you a a more concrete example. I think it'd be very natural to think that there are particles in the world, but there are also uh, uh, chemicals. They're also like larger molecules and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's very, someone who just stopped there and like just wrote, you know, they, they give you their Quinean little, you know, list or telephone book of the entities. Here's the list. And they've got particles, chemicals, and they don't say anything more. Has They're missed. double counting a bit. Okay, yes. Well, um, uh, they've missed a certain important structural relationship between the particles and the chemicals. Maybe um, leaving the monism stuff to the side, let's just pretend now that particle. let's just say that particles are uh, good candidates for fundamental entities. And maybe they are. Um, you'd still want to say that the chemicals exist in virtue of the particles. The reason why you have, let's say, a given H2O molecule here is because you had a bunch of particles arranged 
uh, and related in the right ways that give rise to an H2O molecule. So the idea H2O was... H2O wise. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So the idea is, um, if you just drew up the list of what there was, you'd be missing the structure of what's fundamental and what's derivative uh, on the list. And grounding, no, sorry, but you're asking what the grounding relation is. Grounding is just, so anytime we say that some entities are more fundamental sources and some entities are the, 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 the derivative results of those more fundamental sources, so maybe the particles in the H2O molecule are exemplifying this relationship, then we want to say there's a relation between the sources and the result. Those are not unconnected entities. There's a relation, and grounding is just the name for the relation between the more fundamental sources and the less fundamental result. You can think of it a bit like metaphysical causation. So you say like, oh, yeah, yeah. these are the causes, and this is the outcome. And of course, whenever you have causes and effect, you have a relation connecting them in causation. So likewise, when you have the metaphysical sources and the metaphysical result, the relation, you have a relation connecting them, and, the, and that's what I label grounding, and it's sometimes glossed, I think, quite accurately as metaphysical causation. And relating back to monism, then, I suppose that the cosmos is ultimately what grounds everything as the most fundamental entity, but maybe the the actual picture of how it grounds things is going to be is going to depend heavily on the science on on developments in physics yeah absolutely and okay. likewise i mean that's, i don't think that's particular to monism i think you know the pluralist also i mean it's uh, it's actually like if you actually look at the sort of uh chemical investigations of the structure of water um actually turns out to be really complicated and like the kind of ball and stick chemical models of like h o o it ain't that simple so all of this turns out like from whether you're a monist or a pluralist it gets like pretty you know complicated and involved and like you know the empirical or empirical understanding of these matters is uh you know in flux okay well, now uh, I'm curious about some some other aspects of your work. They do they I, they do um, touch back on the grounding and the monism, but first uh, is cognitive science and metaphysics because I talked. That's a lot of what I talked with uh, Laurie about cool. uh, a few episodes back, and it was really fascinating. I uh, we were I think we talked about how important it is for philosophy to be in a dialogue with other subjects and uh, science, the sciences in particular are, or linguistics or mathematics, depending what, what, you, what branch you're working on. But yeah. how in particular do you see cognitive science as relating to metaphysics, as opposed to something like philosophy of mind, where there's, I mean, clearly a, a, a very direct connection. Right. Okay. Yeah. No, great question. Um, and I, I think there's actually many interesting connections. <clears throat> Actually, I was just at a Philosophy of Science Association meeting uh, speaking in a session that, that Laurie Paul organized on the metaphysics of computation, where we tried to discuss the kind of metaphysical picture that was implicit in a lot of, or in some sense explicit, in a lot of recent cognitive science work 
about the idea that there's these sort of programs that the mind is implementing and stuff like that. So one direction, maybe the, 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 the less, the direction that we don't usually focus on as much is sometimes like um, the metaphysician can even like help the cognitive scientist understand a little bit of the sort of background structure of what they're assuming about the world in their theorizing. But usually it's the help that's coming in the other direction. They're helping us. <laughs> um, and here a lot depends on what kind of arguments that we're looking at. So one place where I've been quite interested in looking to cognitive science and even done some of my own like X-Fi research to try to you know, get some results um, has to do with when we get arguments in metaphysics whose premises are uh, uh, involve claims about what's intuitive. Um, so, for instance, people when people debate uh, mere logical nihilism, to take an example that we've been discussing, uh, or they debate in general uh, under what conditions a plurality of parts has a fusion, where the, nihil the nihilist says, well, uh, uh, never, I guess, except for the degenerate case of something fusing, one thing fusing into itself. Um, and the universalist says always any collection of, of, of things has a fusion. And then there's restrictivist views that say, oh, no, you get fusion, but only under certain restricted conditions. Um, uh, uh, in these debates, it's almost always claimed that certain views are intuitive or at least have intuitive or counterintuitive consequences. So it's like people like complain against the neurological nihilists. Like that's crazy to say that like you that you and I don't exist or like, you know, of course there's a glass here. It's intuitively obvious. Um yeah, yeah. Um or on one the other hand, side, two hand. Yeah. People complain against the neurological universalist, like, oh, you mean you think there's such a thing that's um, the fusion of, you know, my nose and the Eiffel Tower. What a bizarre thing to believe in. So there are all these claims in this uh, debate about when composition occurs as to uh, which views match our intuitions. And that's thought to be like a good thing to match our intuitions. Uh, and yet, none of the people in this debate had ever systematically tried to give an empirically adequate view of our intuitions, which was kind of a, kind of a psychology question. Like, what are our intuitions about when there are mere logical holes? Instead, people were just kind of from the armchair, just reporting like, well, that's intuitive or that's counterintuitive. So um, that's a place where it seems to me that um, cognitive science work um, uh, can really bear on metaphysical disputes, really any dispute in philosophy where a certain claim is recommended as fitting intuition is just open to empirical discussion as to whether that's really how our intuitions work. And actually, uh, on, on the neurological issue, I actually did a bunch of research with uh, uh, David Rose, and we found was something actually a bit, a bit shocking to metaphysicians, though, I think not surprising for people who are more familiar with cognitive sciences, which is that our intuitions about when objects compose tended to turn on our attributions of purpose. So that's something we don't find as a meta. Metaphysicians don't really consider that as an option, right. but 
our brains are wired to ascribe purposes. Um, we're natural born purpose ascribers. And what David, and I saw uh, some really great work by um, Deb Kellerman on this, where they did, she calls the sort of promiscuous teleology, the idea that like people just like willy nilly ascribe. You know, this, this is the kind of view that you hear when people say oh, everything happens for a reason, there's a purpose for everything. Mm-hmm. And it turns out, like yeah. she would, she she's a primarily d- does uh, developmental psychology. She'd bring kids into her lab, and she'd be like, "Why is that rock pointy?" And like, "Oh, it's so that the lion can scratch itself." Uh, well, you know, what are clouds for? Oh, clouds are for rain. So uh, just yeah. kids, like naively, spontaneously, fluidly, yeah, yeah. would ascribe these like purposes to all. Throughout the world. Um, uh, and so what David Rose and I found, like kind of building on Deb Kellman's work, was this idea that um, whether or not people say that mirological fusion has taken place and there is a whole, swings with whether or not they thought the whole system had a purpose. Um, so just to take one sort of example to illustrate what we had in mind, like one of the classic uh, examples in the literature from Peter von Inwagen is he says, von Inwagen says, well, just merely being in contact isn't enough to make for a mereological whole. Because he says, well, imagine that two people shake hands. He says, right. surely in the moment they shake hands and come into contact, we don't get the creation of this new thing, um, the fusion of the two handshakers. Or he says, or also for like things being like, you know, stuck together. He says, well, if they shake hands and have crazy glue on their hands so that they get them stuck together, that doesn't make a new thing. Um, Mm -hmm. And what David and I, uh, David Rose and I were able to do is we were able to actually flip people's intuitions about whether shaking hands would make for a new thing um, by uh, shifting whether there was a sort of a purpose to the composite system of the two people shaking hands. So we had one of our prompts, um, we had a vignette in which there was a sculptor who would ask the two people to come shake hands so that the sculptor could make a sculpture of two people shaking hands that was going to be called Unity. Um, And when people saw the two people shaking hands as having the purpose of being the model for a sculpture, then suddenly they said, there's something there. There's the two people. There's the thing that is made of the two people, um, which is the model for the sculpture. Uh, So that was an example of uh, where I think cognitive science, uh, even cognitive science done by metaphysicians, because they they weren't that interested in in those questions, uh, can uh, be very informative to metaphysicians because it tells us what our intuitions really are. And a lot of arguments in metaphysics are premised on uh, uh, intuitions in in an empirically uh, not well-based way. Hmm. No, I mean, the intersection of metaphysics and cognitive science is endlessly fascinating one other question i had about your debunking project which is what i i gathered this is all all called uh also relates to the folk mariology 
And it seemed like there was another aspect beyond uh, this teleology and composition was related to persistence judgments. Uh, what what what's the story there? Cool. Yeah. With the folk Mariology and persistence judgments. So it turns out, and this is this is work that uh, David Rose did uh, independently, um, but I like it um, that. <laughs> <clears throat> folk judgments about when things persist are likewise um, informed by judgments of purpose. Um, so David was able to sort of give people like classic ship of Theseus uh, questions and get people's intuitions to flip there by changing per the purposes assigned to things Um but let, let me give uh, one, one of his more shocking results. Um, yeah, please. So um, there's a question. So suppose we have a rock and um, it, it turns out this is something that we sort of knew going in uh, to these experiments uh, uh, from kind of Deb Kellerman's work and other people's work is that the folk tend to ascribe eco purposes to uh natural things like rocks so the rock a natural thing to think is the purpose of the rock might be to be like uh, a, a habitat for certain mm. creatures that mm. might like live under the rock or feed off of its whatever um so um uh, uh david wrote up a vignette in which the rock we had this rock and it was a host to these uh, microorganisms who lived off of like the minerals in the rock. Um, and then he, in the story, someone takes a hammer and smashes the rock into smithereens. And like metaphysicians will generally say, if you smash a rock to smithereens, you've destroyed it. The rock does not persist through being smashed to smithereens. Um, but um, uh, what David did was he, uh, ver he, he had two versions of the case. One was when the rock was sort of smashed to smithereens, the microorganisms died. Uh, the other one, though, said that when the rock was smashed to smithereens, that enabled more oxygen to come in, and that actually helped the microorganisms to thrive. And then he asked subjects, participants in, in the research, did the... Did the rock survive? And very surprisingly, it turned out that when the microorganisms flourished, people thought the rock survived, being smashed to smithereens, because they were thinking of the rock as the home of the microorganisms, and they huh. were thinking of the microorganisms as still having a good home. So that's great. Another this is another case where in the persistence literature. A lot of arguments are premised on what's intuitive. And yet the yeah. metaphysicians who make these claims about what's intuitive have little understanding or control over what people really intuit. They're just sort of reporting their own opinions that are very theoretically biased without like trying yeah. to figure out the underlying psychology of what people are thinking about and why. Um, and it turns out, I think, 
that what people are thinking about in these cases and why they're thinking about it is quite different than what uh, metaphysicians have been imagining. Hmm. I know that that's, yeah, that's great. That's awesome. Uh, I, I'm hoping to learn more and interview more people about uh, these issues. Lori put me in contact with some cognitive scientists. So I'm excited awesome. to have them on the podcast. But again, speaking of cognitive science, I'd like to go now to one of your very recent papers. I think it might even be a paper that's in progress. But <laughs> it again, uh, returning to poetry, it starts with another uh, a few great lines. It's uh, your paper, Ground Functionalism, that ends with the four, the last four lines of Yeats's Among School Children. And I'll, I'll read the lines again, since you probably don't have it right in front of you. But it's, O chestnut tree, great rooted blossomer, are you the leaf, the blossom, or the bowl? O body swayed to music, O brightening glance, how can we know the dancer from the dance? Uh, and I might not have done justice to Yeats, but Again, what do those lines mean to you, at least in the moment? In the moment, it's about the, the dancer yeah. and the dance. It's about the idea that um, to have a certain status is just to, in some cases, is just to dance in the right ways. What makes someone a dancer is just that they're dancing in they're dancing. And likewise, the view defended in the paper is that what makes for a certain mental state is just the system dancing in the right way. So the idea there is that there was this sort of deep unity between this kind of kind of functional behavior of the system that it's that it's dancing and what it is or what properties it displays. In this case, mental states. That's... Mm -hmm. And this, this, I mean, might be getting too literary, but the the alliteration, the all those bees, the uh, the rhymes at the end, the assonance, they all really uh, contribute to the sense of unity as you're reading those lines, which I'm sure is um, part of why it really stood out to you in that way. What an amazing, now, amazing. So maybe, sorry. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, maybe we could start with this paper by just saying a bit about what functionalism is in the philosophy of mind, since we haven't been talking about functionalism in the broader context of this discussion so far. So um, there are different forms of functionalism. But the kind of common idea is that, in some sense, um, what it is to have a given mental state, let's just say to experience pain, uh, is just to have the right pattern of responses to, um, to, to certain causes. So the idea is, well... Here are the things that typically might cause pain, say like bodily damage, maybe some other things. And here are the things that typically flow from having pain. Maybe you, you yelp or in general, maybe you exhibit withdrawal behavior. You withdraw from the source of the pain. So the idea is that pain 
sits in a kind of causal nexus. It's the state that's typically caused by bodily damage and typically results in withdrawal behavior. And the idea for, for, for the functionalist is to situate pain in the physical world by thinking of pain functionally as the thing that mediates the causal transition between bodily damage and withdrawal behavior, and then look for the things in the physical world that are causally mediating that transition. So it might be that every time you experience bodily damage and you wind up withdrawing, uh, your C fibers fire in your nerve, in your, this is actually an empirically very bad example. It's not really how things work, but it's the sort of philosophically familiar. This is another example, actually, where like yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the sciences can correct the philosopher. But um, just to stick with the example, let's just suppose that it's C fibers that are causally mediating the transition between bodily damage and withdrawal behavior. That, by the lights of the functionalist, is the, is the clue for where to find pain in the physical world and a reason to think that pain in the physical world traces to, kind of in a neutral way, traces to C-fibers. And then where does the functionalism connect with grounding? Uh, that has to do with that traces to. I was flagging, I was saying traces to in a neutral way. So one, uh, the most standard forms of physicalism will identify pain with C-fiber firing. Or maybe with something more yeah. general, but they'll go in for an identification. Something in the brain, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, the ground functionalist was uh, uh, denying an identity between pain and anything going on in the brain, but instead claimed that there was a grounding relationship, that pain was a separate thing, or, or a different thing, not identical with C-fiber firing or any brain activity, but rather the metaphysical result of the brain activity. So the idea is that just as we might say that um, the H2O molecule is the metaphysical result of having the particles arranged and related the right way. It's not identical to them, it's the result of them. So the pain mm -hmm. might be not identical to the C-fiber firing, but the result of it. Now, I'm wondering where this differs from the less novel discussions of like supervenience relations between mental states on brain states. Um, so in a way, you can think of it as a successor view to the supervenience discussions. So the supervenience people were uh, the people who went in for the identity view were typically considered the reductive physicalists. And supervenience was held out as the non-reductive alternative. If you want to be a non-reductive physicalist, you went in for supervenience. Um, and grounding, it generally in the metaphysics literature, is claimed to supersede talk of supervenience. 
for making sense of dependence relations. So I, 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 I do actually think of this as, the kind, as a kind of inheritor of the supervenience tradition and a kind of superseding improvement uh, instead of saying that the mental states globally supervene on the physical states, we say the mental states are grounded in the physical states and, and talk about why that uh, marks an improvement. But that's, but mm-hmm. broadly speaking, these are sort of forms of non-reductive physicalism. Um, so what, uh, just as a side note, um, you've, you've talked about um, ground functionalism as the successor view to some supervenience theories, and then you talked about uh, the successor theory to quantum mechanics. I've never heard this like sort of phrase construction before, but I really like it, and I'm definitely going to be stealing it uh, from you going forward. And okay, I, I if the listener no, has no trademarks, noticed, uh, it's. Uh... Okay, nice great. Place. If the listener hasn't hasn't noticed, I've I've been I'm trying to understand more of the implications for your program on other. And sorry if I for keeping referring to it as your program. I hope that's okay. But but for some of the implications of your program for other areas of philosophy, and one place that I didn't expect to find it was that there have been some debates about grounding in feminist philosophy, and in particular, uh, feminist metaphysics. And why, to, to start there, what's the connection and why have some people viewed uh, the grounding relation as hostile to feminist metaphysics? Yeah, good. So um, the connection is that um, one um, crucial notion that comes up in feminist metaphysics and in general in a lot of social ontology is this idea that certain things are socially constructed. So in feminist metaphysics, one of the the core claims in the field is that gender is a social construction. Um, And in social ontology generally said that like money is supposed to be a social construction, maybe laws are social constructions, Race is another example of a socially constructed status, where the idea, in the case of money, is sort of intuitively clearest. The idea is like a given, the the idea that a given piece of paper has monetary value is, um, there's nothing like intrinsic to the paper that like bestows monetary value on it. Rather, it's just that we all, and in this case, it's almost like we all just act as if. We dance the dance as if it has monetary mm-hmm. value. And that's what mm-hmm. it, all it takes to bestow monetary value on a thing that doesn't have like any natural or intrinsic monetary value. Um, and you can think of uh, a sort of social constructions views of gender as having a similar sort of feel to them, which is the idea that there isn't any like pre-existing natural um, uh, uh, division between like men and the women or whatever gender categories are operating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rather, it's that we all start sort of dividing people up and treating people in differentiated ways based on how we sorted them into boxes. And the reality of gender isn't this pre-existing, just like the value of money, it's not this pre-existing thing 
um, that was governing our sorting. Rather, it's this thing that just comes out later, as it were, uh, uh, because we sorted people into boxes in this way. That's what makes for uh, uh, gender status. So this notion of social construction is really is a crucial notion throughout feminist metaphysics and throughout philosophical yeah. ontology. Yeah, definitely. And there's a question of what is this notion? What does it mean to socially construct? Um, and so um, that's uh, I sort of came into the debate at that point and argued that uh, grounding uh, is sort of a perfect fit for understanding what social construction, uh, uh, for understanding the, the relation of social construction. So the idea is that the socially constructed is supposed to be this non-fundamental, derivative, generated outcome that's explicable in terms of um, the materials it's socially constructed from, and that grounding is supposed to be what uh, uh, makes things non-fundamental derivative outcomes that are explicable from a certain basis. So the idea is like social construction, I think I said like, it waddles, paddles, and quacks like a grounding relation. It has like kind of all <laughs> the features of grounding. So I argue that the, we have like the, the grounding theorist can be helpful to feminist metaphysics and to social, to social ontology by giving us a, a very natural and fitting way to understand social construction. Um, hmm. Yeah, and then um, there was there were objections largely from Elizabeth Barnes. That that um, that certain frameworks for doing contemporary metaphysics, and my style grounding framework got included in, among those, um, didn't leave a place for feminist metaphysics and was hostile to feminist metaphysics. Um, I think that was a bit of a misunderstanding of my program. Um, there are certain programs in fundamental metaphysics that say all there is is the fundamental stuff, and that's all we should be interested in. And those kind of programs, and then there, there are people who hold that view, uh, those kind of programs, yeah, they don't have any real interest in derivative structure. So if you think that metaphysics is just about what's fundamental, then you think metaphysics maybe just about sort of the stuff that physicists are turning up, something like that. You don't think it's about what like chemists are turning up or about what, what sociologists are turning up. So you don't think that there's any like deeply interesting uh, issues in the metaphysics of gender. So that, I, I can see how there is room to complain that that sort of metaphysical framework doesn't leave much room for um, feminist metaphysics. So uh, Ted Sider, who has a kind of a view like this, has contested that. So I don't want to take a stand on that. But, but my own view was never that metaphysics is about what's fundamental. Uh, actually, the bumper sticker version of my view is metaphysics is about what grounds what. And that's got two slots in it for the grounds and the grounded output. So it's about, mm -hmm. so on, on a grounding framework, metaphysics isn't just about the bottom. It's this relational thing about the more and the less, the more fundamental sources and the less fundamental result. And I think that's actually a super useful tool for social ontology because we want to see certain right. social uh, uh, statuses, perhaps gender, 
as a non-fundamental output of some more fundamental sources. And more deeply, we want to understand what those sources are and maybe even how we can change them. So, right. So in fact, you think that, or your position is that the grounding relation is actually, um, can be quite helpful for social ontology and a feminist metaphysical program. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Neat. You are very much like a project oriented philosopher <laughs> and not, not all philosophers are like that. Some are dilettantes. They sort of stick there. Uh, they, they work in all sorts of areas. Uh, so is there, is there a reason or something about you as a character that has resulted in you pursuing philosophy in this way? Oh, uh, that's a great question. Um, I actually sometimes think of this in the opposite perspective, like, oh, I, I, I've never, I've written a, like a lot of articles and those articles often sort of wind up being like a series of articles on a common topic, but I've never written a book. So that's another, some metaphysicians mm -hmm. like to, are more book oriented. Um, I don't know why it is that my work has tended to come in this way. It's just felt natural to me. I mean, I've gotten interested in a topic, um, monism, grounding being ex some examples of the, of the topics that I've been interested in. And then um, as I'm, I think what happens for me, I don't sort of go into the topic thinking, okay, I'm going to write seven papers on this topic. I sometimes sort of just have a paper that I want to write. But then as I'm working on the paper, um, I'm seeing other connections and, you know, thoughts are naturally sort of spinning out in different directions. And I'm in the good case, like engaging with other people and getting comments and that sort of naturally will raise new considerations. So uh, what starts as one paper for me often sort of naturally spins off into a cluster of papers sort of further developing the idea or responding to objections or, you know, so I think what's happened is uh, maybe the, actually the best way that I can understand this is I've had the good fortune to have had many excellent uh, interlocutors. Uh, you, we've been talking about Lori Paul throughout. She's someone who I've interacted with a lot. Um, and it's just a lot of other outstanding people. Uh, Ted Sider got mentioned recently. He's another example of someone who's just been super helpful to me in terms of getting feedback and comments. So I've had the, the good fortune of um, having a lot of help um, in terms of the just critical engagement with uh, the ideas that I'm working on. And then that gets me like excited about nearby ideas. And then a series mm -hmm. of papers just kind of comes out of that extended conversation that I'm fortunate enough to have had the opportunity to have. Okay. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today, Jonathan. I learned so much and I'm sure my audience is going to get a ton out of this as well. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time and I really enjoyed talking. Thank you.